in your bulletin is a panel that has uh, Proverbs 5, a number of verses, 15 to 23, uh, printed on there along with a short outline. We're going to be looking primarily at Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 as they deal with the subject of wisdom and intimacy. As we continue through the book of Proverbs in this series that I've entitled Ancient Wisdom for Modern Times, we're beginning to look topically now at specific subjects that this book of wisdom addresses for us. Remember, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. It's mentioned over 20 times throughout the book of Proverbs alone. And the fear of the Lord understood in the Bible's message as a whole is pushing us and pointing us to understand that God is holy, righteous, and just, and that we stand under His just wrath and curse for our sin. So we ought to fear Him. But that because He sent a substitute, a Savior, Jesus Christ, we have grace and mercy given to us to restore and reconcile that relationship. So the fear of the Lord for the believer is one of joy and awe and reverence. And as we think of what it takes for us to be made right before God, justified, as Pastor Tony taught us from Ephesians 2, when we come to the book of Proverbs, the wisdom for today, we're seeing how God uses His Word to sanctify us, to grow us in holiness, to grow us in maturity. That's where the book of Proverbs comes into our life. We have this rich treasure of of wisdom for living out our salvation and sanctification. We grow to hate and to forsake our sin, and we grow to love and pursue righteousness by seeing wisdom put forth in daily living. Over these next three weeks, we'll uh, we'll, we'll take a look at this week, wisdom and intimacy, next week, wisdom and money, and the following week, wisdom with our words. So we won't be able to be exhaustively studying the entire Scriptures on this, but we'll look primarily at the Proverbs speaking to those subjects, and we'll pull in some other relevant Scripture passages as well. Today's subject, wisdom in intimacy, is one that I, I want to be open and honest as God's Word is, while at the same time being careful and discreet as God's Word also is. He can do both at the same time, and I'm going to attempt the same. Our culture is bold and lewd and perverted in the way that it talks about intimacy. Yet, God's perspective on intimacy needs to be heard. It needs to be understood and held fast to. Now, sometimes churches have been overly prudish and overly fearful in its teaching to steer people away from dishonoring intimacy. And we ought to be careful not to emphasize what is warned against to the exclusion of what is actually portrayed as good and right and pleasing and well-pleasing to the Lord. So, I don't want to make the car ride too uncomfortable for you, car ride home too uncomfortable for some of you with younger ones, but I do want to speak clearly as to what God's Word says is the way of wisdom concerning intimacy. I'll say as well, as I prepared this message, day by day went by, and I was more and more convinced 
that this is a message that needs to be heard today. In 20 plus years of pastoral counseling, I can't think of a area that has had more damaging impacts on relationships, families, and family units than this area of intimacy. And so, whether it's because of people's sin from their past or they're being sinned against, we need to go to God's Word to get the truth and to get straightened out because the message of the world will not steer us straight. It will simply push us aside. Unbelievers don't appreciate and understand that intimacy is a gift from God and it's according to His rules that we are designed to best live by. When you are an unbeliever, you're living for yourself and you're living carried by the, the passions of the flesh. And so this sermon isn't, isn't geared to convince somebody otherwise. Until your heart is changed and in submission to Christ, His principles and standards and guidelines aren't going to be espoused. They're not going to be taken in. But this message is for believers at every stage of life, not just for unmarried or married or divorced or widowed. This is for each of us to understand better what does God's Word say about the subject of intimacy. I've seen young people that have been enslaved to watching images and videos on their computer or cell phone. I've had grief and tears over children who've been exposed or misused for the twisted pleasure of others. I've counseled those who are trapped in a cycle of solo intimacy and in the shame and guilt that go along with it. And I've pleaded with Christian teens who felt sweet-talked into giving away a precious gift by someone who wanted them to prove their love to them. Single parenting and broken homes can often be found out of the flow out of sinful intimacy. I've seen young married couples and some older ones afraid and confused about the beauty and joy of intimacy because they only heard the warnings and the dangers of what to steer clear of. Singles and those who have endured a door, uh, divorce or the death of a spouse have sought help and wisdom for navigating the pressures and the temptations that they face in life. But let's hear from God's Word. Let's hear from Proverbs 5, God's wisdom for intimacy. I'll begin with verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for the stranger with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we want to hear from you clearly. And Lord, as you speak honestly and openly about areas that sometimes we blush over, I pray that we would courageously um, hear you speak. Lord, as we hear of 
things that the world has such a twisted and misunderstood view of, calling evil good and good evil. Lord, give us ears to hear the truth. Lord, as we have been bombarded and our hearts are being attacked all the time, Lord, I pray that we would guard our hearts above all else. Lord, that we would set our minds and our affections on things above, not on things of the earth. Lord, that Your Word would shape us and mold us so that in the area of intimacy, we would bring honor to You. We pray this would happen because of Your gracious work and Your Spirit at work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. As I was looking over uh, commentaries on Proverbs, particularly 5, 6, and 7 that we'll be looking at, there is often in modern commentators this misunderstanding that they believe the Bible is rooted in misogyny and in patriarchy, and there is a bias. And it's especially clear when, the way that Proverbs talks about women in Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. They, these some modern interpreters will point to the characterization of women here as the evil woman, the forbidden woman, the adulterous woman, those who seduce unsuspecting innocent young men. And they'll say that, well, if a man sins, it seems like it must be the woman's fault. And yet, they're just narrowly looking at this passage and really not understanding it in the context that it's given. It's a faulty perspective for what is the intent of Proverbs. Remember, Proverbs is written as a king to the royal son. It is a book written to a man who is facing preparation for leadership and to guard his character and his integrity and to be fit to be a leader. He must be aware of the pitfalls that come in this area of his life. And so these are particular warnings in his particular context. You can go to other places in Scripture and see that the Bible calls out men for their sinfulness and their folly in regard to intimacy. In fact, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, everyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's pointed at men, and men need to hear that. The Bible is not lopsided in only castigating women for being uh, wicked and adulterous in this area, although that's a particular warning that we're going to be looking at in the book of Proverbs. First, we need to look at how intimacy was God's idea and how He created it in the first place before mankind fell into sin. We have to go back to Genesis 2, beginning at verse 22. And you remember, God created this beautiful planet, and He's filling it with birds and fish and animals, and then man, the crown of his creation. And he created Adam out of the dust of the earth, and he breathed the breath of life in him. And there wasn't a suitable match, helper, for Adam found in all of creation. So God had to do something unique, special, and amazing when he actually took a rib out of Adam's side in verse 22, it says, The rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into the woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed." 
Here's God's intention. Marriage is the place in which this one flesh union is permitted, encouraged, and allowed. It is between one man and one woman, and it's an expression of God creating the man and woman, two, out of the one, when they come back together in this covenant of marriage that is a bond for their entire life, that unity of both soul and mind and spirit is expressed in a physical form through marital intimacy. This is God's design and God's purpose. God made us and created us, so He gets to set the rules for how we're to function. The designer and the engineer of a, of a machine or a product defines how that is to be used, how it best functions. And so, we see that intimacy reflects the spiritual and emotional unity that husband and wives share in a, in a physical way. In 1 Corinthians 6, we have more guidance of how God created marital intimacy. He says, uh, we, in 1 Corinthians 6, we see sinful intimacy is an affront to the Holy Spirit who we've been given as, uh, as we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits outside the body, but the immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So if it wasn't enough for God to say, I made you and created you, you ought to function this way because I say this is the way it works. Created for a purpose, we should at least then recognize beyond that, we as believers have been bought with a price. He's redeemed us. He's made us his own. So we owe him everything that we have. Redemption and creation both speak loudly to us that we are designed to glorify God in physical intimacy. And then in 1 Corinthians 7, we see that marital intimacy is designed to be for giving and serving your spouse, not for selfish exploitation. In verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 7, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to, one, to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So in the area of intimacy, there are sins that are sins of commission. I think Pastor Tony made reference to that, where we transgress God's law. God says, do this, and we do the opposite. And then there are times when we are commanded to what we should do that would honor God, and we, by omission, fail to do that. And so, our physical intimacy can be sinful if we do what God forbids, but it also can be sinful neglect if we fail to do what God requires. Again, we're simply stewards. Um, Paul Tripp wrote these words um, about this concept. He says, human beings were designed to be resident managers of the created world God owns. Adam and Eve and us don't have what they've been, uh, don't own what they've been given. 
They don't get to make the rules for what's been made. They don't get a vote when it comes to the purpose of their own lives. They're there to recognize God's ownership by fulfilling his purpose. Again, the world has no clue about this. They've rejected God as creator, and they certainly don't understand him as the one who's bought them with a price. So they're living for themselves, and they're living for their own selfish desires. But that's not the way God's made us. He's made us stewards, caretakers. Well, the Proverbs 5 through 7 really warns us. He gives us uh, where we can see that God's uh, that God dishonoring intimacy is truly a curse. All these warnings laid out for us, starting in chapter 5, verse 1. There's a variety of scenarios that demonstrate that there is danger, there's destruction that comes when we lack wisdom and intimacy. And I say this, and I'm going to belabor the point, because everything that the world tells you about intimacy is so downplayed and so minimized that we need to hear the extreme warnings, the devastating consequences that come when we dishonor God with our intimacy. 5.1 says, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion, that your lips may guard knowledge, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she's bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path of Sheol. What's this saying? It's saying what may seem sweet will turn out bitter. What you think is pleasing in the moment will end up being your downfall, even to the point of death. Also, in verses 9 through 11, we see that shame, dishonor, disgrace. If, if I were to point to a problem in our society that our society understands, but they, they can describe, but they don't understand. It's that of shame. It's that of guilt. And that shame and guilt that comes along with, sexu- with intimacy that dishonors God is very evident in verse 9. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to, be, to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner, and at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And further, this sin consumes us, and it leaves us in ruins. And you say, how I hated discipline, my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. It's not an overstatement to say utter ruin comes when intimacy is misused. And it's often accompanied by secrecy and deception. In Proverbs 7, verse 9, in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night in darkness, thinking that this is done in secret. Verse 19, for my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. We can get away with this. Nobody will know. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter or a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. It's ignorance. It's almost willful ignorance to think, I won't get caught. This won't trap me. For many a victim 
has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Nathan, we've had enough. The warnings are just too harsh. Listen to chapter 6, verse 27. Adultery destroys marriage, and it brings the jealous rage of a husband. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? What's the literal obvious answer? No, you can't do that. You're going to get burned. Well, so is he who goes down, goes into his neighbor's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief because he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry. But if he's caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He does, he who does not, who does it, destroys himself. Warning after warning after warning. Now, we need to hear those warnings loud and clear because nothing in our culture is telling us that. But if all we hear are the warnings and we don't hear about the blessings of God honoring marital intimacy, then we only have half the picture. And we won't be drawn to worship God, to glorify God in this key area of life if we don't see it for what it really is meant to be. Look again at the passage as it's printed in your handout. God-honoring intimacy is a blessing. And Tremper Longman, in his commentary on Proverbs here, uh, makes this insight. He says, The Father is encouraging the idea that the best defense against committing adultery is a strong offense, reveling in the joys of marital intimacy. Don't just say, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it. Actually see what God has given you to do and go after it in the way that God intends you to. And that is, verse 15, drink water from your own cistern, following, flowing from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets. This is imagery. This is pointing to the intimacy in marriage that God created for good. And it's words that are similar to what's used in the Song of Solomon and in these beautiful depictions of the way God has made love to function. Let them be for yourself alone, not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. The Bible only mentions here and maybe one other place intoxication as being something that is good and commanded. And it's not intoxication with strong drink or alcohol. It's being intoxicated with love. And that's the joy, and that's the pleasantness, and that's the, the wonder of the blessing that can be had when marital intimacy is honoring to the Lord. Safeguarding our marriages through joyfully serving our spouses will bring more than just physical pre- pleasure. It really provides emotional and spiritual unity as well. You see, that's the way that God designed it to function in marriage. And this joy is best experienced when the emotional baggage, the bitterness, or the resentment that comes in our relationships, when that's dealt with, when that's forgiven, when that is covered over in love, then there is a freedom to enjoy marital intimacy the way God intended. Keep your accounts short with one another. Don't allow these conflicts 
to continue. They need to be resolved in order for us to maintain healthy marital intimacy. So, what about me? What about where I'm at? And I think we can hear about all the warnings and we can hear about all the blessings, but then we can understand, you know what? There are some terrible things that have happened in my life, terrible things that have been done to me, terrible things that I took part in before I knew Christ. I'm broken. Sexually broken people are very, very near to the heart of the Lord. You know, I began relating how often I see brokenness in the area of intimacy, how devastating that can be, and I I don't want to leave you scared and hopeless. I want you to have some encouragement. I want you to see hope that if you've been sinned against or if you've taken part in sinful intimacy against God's design, there is hope for you. There is healing for you. And there's encouragement. Can I share a few stories of redemption, of God healing the broken? I've changed the names and I've changed some of the circumstances and details so that you won't know who they are. But I have to show you how Jesus can heal broken lives by his mercy, by his grace. He redeems and transforms our brokenness. One of the hard things I was asked by one of our elders, what's the most difficult thing about doing counseling? And with the 20 plus years that I've been doing counseling, the most difficult thing is when people hear the truth, but they walk away unchanged and they don't follow what the truth of God's word says that they're not changed by, by the grace of God to, to change. And that's devastating to see relationships broken and destroyed and hurt. But you know what? I get a front row seat for all that brokenness, but I also get a front row seat to see God's grace break through and change lives. And there's hope. When Tom came to me, he was a single guy who'd been to Bible college He grew up in a Christian home. He had parents who taught him the Word of God. But at an early age, he got hooked and drawn into pornography. And eventually, it got to the point where he was soliciting prostitutes. He, every time he drove the route back home, he consciously tried to avoid the places where he had fallen and stumbled. But he was drawn back to them. He couldn't find a way out of this cycle of guilt and shame. And he was to the point of contemplating suicide. But God brought him to the end of himself, and he radically changed his heart. And he came to realize that his problem wasn't primarily an intimacy problem. His problem was a heart problem that was a worship problem. He was worshiping self. He was a lover of pleasure rather than God. And he needs to repent of that worship and worship God by remaining faithful to Him in the area of intimacy. And when God finally exposed His heart and transformed Him, He found victory. He needed accountability. He needed help to continue to stay on the right path. But He grew to love Jesus more than His sinful desires. But there's more. Sam and Tina were frustrated. They were so frustrated and wore out with their infrequent and unsatisfying attempts at intimacy. They were at, they started from the very beginning of their marriage. Uh, Tina was promiscuous in her college years before she met Jesus. And when she 
met Christ and was transformed and changed, she then met Sam. And Sam had saved himself for marriage and was overjoyed to share that special gift with Tina on their wedding night. What came to light as we talked was Tina's need to really believe and rest in the forgiveness that she has. Uh, She had false guilt over her past that she couldn't shake except by the grace of God. When she learned to rest in Christ and believe that her sin was removed as far as the east is from the west, she was free. She was freed to pursue intimacy in marriage and to give herself fully to her husband. But wait, there's more. Jim and Mary have looked like a perfect couple on the outside. They were devoted, regular church attenders and members, served in different areas of the church. One afternoon, I got a tearful call from Mary, and she said that she had found pictures and videos on the family computer as well as a long chain of a web history of illicit chats and more. Now, let me just say, under these circumstances, humanly speaking, there are very low odds that this marriage is going to survive. Most marriages don't. But when Janie and I met with them, we realized pretty soon that there was more than just regret for Jim for getting caught. There was something more. I've seen how husbands who get caught regret more than repent. They have a a worldly sorrow. It leads to destruction. But this was different. There was a godly sorrow. And what Jim would say is that he had such an area of secrecy and darkness that nobody was allowed to get in that when he was finally exposed, he was like a burden was off his shoulders. He was free. And that the gospel of God's grace to rescue a sinner like him flooded into this area that he had kept God out of. And his life and marriage needed to be rebuilt. The marriage that they had was on shaky foundation, but honesty and trust were rebuilt with Jesus at the center of their lives. These are just a few stories of hope that Christ does redeem and restore broken, broken people. And God's design, we must say, is the best design. And so we need to immerse ourselves in the Word of God and everything that it teaches in this important subject so that we're not carried away and shifted in our thinking by what the world has to say. It's just take it for granted, this false idea about intimacy that the world has to sell you. And if you're not grounded yourself in what God's design is, and if you're not equipping the next generation for what true God-honoring intimacy ought to be, a trail of tears will be uh, followed. As we live in God's truth in the air of intimacy in our lives, we will stand out more and more against the dark backdrop of the world. We'll look different. And in fact, we'll be in the crosshairs to some degree, seen as haters and condemning of others. And that's not the attitude we ought to have, but we should stand for the truth. God's plan for intimacy And the way that we can avoid the curses from dishonoring intimacy are here for us today. Today, you can start afresh. You can start anew. 
you can go again to Jesus. You can find healing and hope in our wonderful, merciful Savior. Let's pray. God, I know the brokenness and hurt that I see in my life and in the lives of many here, many within our congregation and beyond these walls that have suffered greatly. Some have suffered because of the sinful choices they've made, and some have suffered greatly because of the sinful choices of others. Lord, either way, we are convinced, and we confess today that your grace is sufficient, your power is made perfect in weakness, and Lord, we need that power. We need your hope. Lord, I pray that you would, by your grace, strengthen your people here to live in ways that would honor you, to see the areas of brokenness put together and healed so that we can live in ways that will honor and glorify you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.